Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan. Thank you for joining us today. This is going to be week two of our look into Roman Catholicism. This week we're going to spend time looking at church history and some key events that has shaped the church as a whole as to what we see it today. So I'm going to get right to business here. So the Catholic Church claims that their origin is the true Catholic Church, which is another term for the universal church, which is through Simon Peter. And they're using Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, as the basis for the foundation of the Catholic Church. And it says this in Matthew chapter 16, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In the year 30 AD is when the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ took place, and this is when Catholicism claims that the true Catholic Church had its origin through Peter because of the declaration of Jesus at this time. Now, for the next 300 years, the Church, all of Christianity, was, in, was subject to the Roman Empire, and as we know from history, that they did not like Christianity. They outlawed Christianity because they deemed it as a threat to the order of their empire. So they heavily persecuted all believers in the name of Christ. And this went on for about 300 years. Until the year 313, when we have Emperor Constantine enter the scene. Now, at the surface, Emperor Constantine looks like he was converted. And that's why he, he claimed that Christianity was no longer forbidden through the Edict of Milan. Now, the problem is, though, is that if we were to look deeply into what Emperor Constantine stood for, he was not a true believer. He was more of a politically converted person. He saw Christianity as being something that he could use as a means to power. But not only that, but if you look deeply into what Constantine allowed into the worship of, of Christianity, it was a lot of it was pagan, especially with a lot of the things that he made to look like Christianity. And most of it was worshiping the sun god. And so we know this is not the real Christianity, so already from year 313, Things are already not looking good for us. Now, it took him about 10 years of work in order to make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And this was a boon, surely, to those who are practicing true Christianity. But let's be clear that Constantine was not like a patron saint or a savior of some kind for Christians as a whole because what he stood for was not the truth. There were many things that he did that were contrary to the Bible. In the year 325, we have the Nicene Creed, 
and we have the first bishop council. And their main topic was the divinity of Christ. Was Christ a divine being? Was he God, or was he just a great man, or was he a prophet? Was he a created being? And that was one of the main topics that were done during the first bishop council. In the year 379, the Roman Empire splits into half. We have the east side and we have the west side. The west side being the Roman Empire that we continue to know. And then we have the east side, which became the Byzantine Empire or Constantinople. The empire split. In the year 431, the Council of Ephesus met, and there was a group of people that were within the church named the Nestorians, and they split due to doctrinal differences and things like that. They split from the church, and it was a pretty significant split. And it was here at this time that we have one of the earliest records of the deification of Mary. So it goes back quite a long way where Mary is deified, where she becomes someone greater than just a woman. She becomes something that can be prayed to, something above human. And it started here in 431 AD. Then we have in 451, we have the Council of Chalcedon. This is when the Oriental Orthodox group split from the church. In 476, the fall of the Roman Empire took place, and then we have the first signs and documentation of Islam beginning to spread through the world. History then remains quiet for about a good 300 years until we get to the year 800, when Pope Leo III appoints Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor. Now, this is where we start seeing that the Catholic Church becomes an influential political power as well as a religious sect. So this is something that's very important, especially when we see modern-day Catholicism, how politically it still has so much power when religion and politics should not mix in this way. Then we have in the year 1054, we have what's called the Great Schism. And at this point, what happens is there were other doctrinal beliefs and traditions that were in conflict with each other. So the Catholic Church split into two. The east side of the church became known as the Orthodox Church that we know today. And then the west side would remain being called the Catholic Church. After this happened, it was about 40 years later that that the Catholic Church became involved in the Crusades. Now, at this time, the Pope controlled kings and military, and so the Pope had great influence over going to war over the Holy Land. Now, The Crusades were on and off for a good 150 years. That's a huge span of time, but for about 150 years. And at the end of it all, the Muslims won. 
Now, it's debatable whether or not the Crusades actually should have happened, and I don't want to get into that, but uh, that this is what happened. Now, at the end of the Crusades, we see the first documents appearing teaching the doctrine of purgatory. So we can be pretty confident that the idea of purgatory was invented in the 13th century. And I use the word invented intentionally because that's exactly what it is. It is invented. There is no purgatory listed in the Bible, but yet the Catholic Church holds fast to it today. Then in the year 1384, we have a man who enters the scene who was the, probably the one of the first reformers, a role model for some people later on, like Martin Luther. His name is John Wycliffe. And the, what's important about John Wycliffe is that he's one of the first people, if not the first, to translate the Bible into English. Now, traditionally, the Catholic Church only wanted the Bible in Latin and you were not allowed to have your own copies of Scripture because they did not want you to have the Word of God in your possession. Their reasoning for that was that they did not want the Bible to be interpreted incorrectly. Now, in the reality of things, it was a political pull as a means of control, but that's what they would say is the reason why. So, the Catholic Church found out that John Wycliffe had made copies of the Bible in English, and they were outraged. And so they found him and as many copies of his translations as, he could, as they could, and they burned them. There were some surviving copies that we know of, but almost all of them got burned. Then we come to 1517, which is... Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, which is the beginning, the true beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Not only that, but a few years after that, the Church of England is starting to break away from the Catholic Church, being its own separate entity. Then we have something that is highly pivotal, and we're going to go into this one in more detail today, which is the Council of Trent. In the year 1545, it lasted about four years. This was uh, something that dramatically reshaped the Catholic Church and how it ran and operated. And so we're going to definitely go into that one, as well as there are a couple other ones that we'll talk about in a bit. In the year 1611, we have the King James Bible that was finally finished. And... All of Great Britain was united over the King James Bible because of King James. And he was one of the first kings, if not the first, to send missionaries uh, throughout the world with their copies of his Bible. So as we know today, the King James is still very relevant. It is not the only translation that is worthy which, again, is a separate debate, but it was certainly a good thing that the King James was created in English for people to be able to spread the gospel outside of Latin. Now, in the year 1620, Puritans 
from England traveled over to the Plymouth colony in America and they established a, another colony in the Plymouth area. So we start seeing a Christian presence in the New World. The year 1638 is the year that the Baptists claim is their origin year. 1647 is the year that the Quakers claimed that their origin was. The year 1738 is when the Methodists were founded, according to them. The Episcopalians, they claim, were founded in, the seven, in 1789. In 1807, we see the Presbyterians enter the scene. In 1830, we see the Mormons come into play. In 1847, we see the Lutherans appear in history. And then we come to 1854, which is the first time we see the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception that was invented. Again, another invention of man that was added to the Bible. Again, this is serious because this is an exaltation of someone who is not God, yet giving credit to this person almost on par with God, and this is a problem. Then we have another one we're going to dive into more deeply. In 1860, we have Vatican I, the first Vatican Council. We'll talk about what they talked about in this, but this one was another major one that we need to go through. In the year 1870, there were two major doctrines that were reinforced in the Catholic Church. We have Pastor Eternus and Ex Cathedra. Basically what this is, is talking about the authority of the Pope and his infallibility as being a Pope. Not only did he have all authority under heaven, to shape the church as he needed to, but when he spoke from the seat as Pope, it was without error. It was as if God was speaking it. And this was reinforced in 1870. In the year 1872, we have the origin date for the Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1929, Mussolini declared Vatican City to be its own nation. And if you go through the history of the Vatican City, it's got a lot of conflict and wars and stuff in between there. But this was the first date that it was declared to be its own nation. In 1962, we have the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II. And that lasted about three years. And again, this one majorly shaped the landscape of the Catholic Church. We're going to go through that one in more depth here. In the year 2013, we have Pope Francis, who has become a more prominent pope, and this is the pope that is currently um, in power at the time of recording this. So in 2013, he declares that gay priests, homosexual priests, are allowed in the Catholic Church. Much different perspective than any other pope before him. 2017, he allows priests to marry. This had never been done before. 2019, Pope Francis declares on TV to the public that Muslims, Catholics, and Protestants worship the same God. 
And this is where we would call the One World Religion movement is starting to take ground. In the year 2020, Pope Francis is now allowing female priests. And in, if you look at the news today, 2022, you'll see that Pope Francis is continuing to make accommodations for people like that, and he is really opening up the doors to the LGBTQ community and some of this other woke garbage that's out there today. It's, it's infiltrating the Catholic Church, and the Pope is saying in his infallibility that it is acceptable. So, makes you wonder. So now, let's go into the Council of Trent. This one is major, so we need to talk about this one. The Council of Trent is a better way of describing it would be the Counter-Reformation. This was a council that met in direct opposition to the Reformation of Martin Luther and people like him. This was in northern Italy, where a group of bishops and the Pope were threatened by an internal power struggle. Because there were some people that were waking up to the idea that, hey, there's people trying to speak against the Catholic Church. And they're saying these things, and they have the audacity to corrupt us from the inside. Because, because if we know our history, Martin Luther himself was a Catholic priest. And he rebelled against the Catholic Church because of its uh, power-mongering. So the Church called for some institutional housekeeping, and this was a direct response to the Reformation. So the Council was a series of meetings that scattered over 18 years. And the participants were mostly church officials, Catholic theologians, and lawyers, people of the law. And their three main purposes were this. For one, they wanted to answer and counter Protestant criticisms of the Catholic Church. Secondly, they wanted to explain why Catholicism was correct and authoritative over the Reformed teachings. And thirdly, they wanted to reform their own worship while eliminating internal corruption. And it had gotten really out of hand. And if you go through different areas of Roman Catholicism at this time, they were not all practicing the same thing. There was no uniformity in the faith. And so they intended to focus on those things. So what came out of this was significant, and it shaped their religion to this very day. So some things that came out of this. Pluralism. The clergy was defined and it was structured into a proper way how the clergy worked. You know, you have your priest, the bishop, and so on. The use of relics became a, a common practice, using relics as holy objects, which relics are pieces of saints, either pieces of their physical body or objects that they possessed or may have had contact with. They were used as holy objects to help commune and be blessed by God. And so you have things like the Shroud of Turin, which they claim is the facial burial cloth of Christ. You, know, you have the pillars and the chains of Paul. You have the bones of Peter. You, know, you have things like this where people are 
holding on to these relics, and it's it gives you not only authority as a an official church of the Catholic Church, but also they revere it in some way because it gives some sort of a blessing. The Council of Trent also regulated the use of indulgences, which we'll get into that later on, but indulgences were not something that should have been created. <laughs> Seminaries were established, and this one was good. This, they wanted to promote uniformity, and so they created seminaries. They wanted to properly train their priests and their teachers to make sure everyone was teaching the same thing. They started using the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas, and this was big. And it was used until the 60s, and in some ways it still is used today. And some of the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas are completely against the Bible, especially with the deification of Mary. And so we're going to go into that later on in more detail. The Latin Vulgate is the only authoritative Bible. They wanted to make sure that the Bible was only read and written in Latin. They began to enforce the seven sacraments, which we have a whole week dedicated to that. Tradition now has equal authority to Scripture. And we're going to dedicate a week to that as well. Their Mass, you know, their, their church service, their Mass benefits the dead. And in their words, it was a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And they, it is necessary for salvation. So we're going to talk about that one as well. The Mass and the Rosary help release souls from purgatory faster. Again, you have to believe in purgatory to think that this works. And if we know the rosary, the rosary is something that is constantly repeated over and over and over ritualistically. And by some means, just by speaking the words ritualistically, you are performing some sort of duty to the Lord. If you know anything about your Bible, as well as what we have read up until now in our daily Bible reading, that God does not work that way. He requires relationship, and he requires the intentions of the heart. Now, they also took the context of James, the book of James, and they twisted it into where they made it official that faith and works are required for salvation. And we'll talk about that later. Communion is now necessary for salvation, partaking of the Holy Eucharist which we have a week dedicated to the Holy Eucharist as well. And lastly, justification through works. You are justified by your works, which is in contrast to what the Bible says about it. So a lot of big things we see here came from the Council of Trent. But let's move on to the First Vatican Council, or Vatican I. In Vatican I, 700 bishops came together to discuss the church's largest issue, where the Catholic Church stood versus modernism. Because there were many countries that did not like how much political power the Pope had, and it caused many people not to want to follow him, and the Pope in particular. They, were, they wanted to stay Catholic, but they didn't quite believe the Pope was a legitimate leader of the church. 
So there were some major changes and revisions to church canon at this time. So first off, they made it to where the Immaculate Conception was a core belief. So what this means is that Mary allegedly was born without sin so that she can be the one to house and give birth to Christ. Their belief was that a tainted human being that has a sin nature could not give birth to God. So she in some way had to be different from your average person to where she was born without sin. And the Bible does not say anything about that. They claimed apostolic succession. The Pope is solely able to clarify and declare church doctrine. This is big because in a way what they do is they claim the authority of Peter as the seat of Pope. They claim that Peter was the first Pope. And so every Pope that comes after Peter inherits the power and authority of Simon Peter himself. And so that is what it means by apostolic succession, is that the authority of being the original apostle is given to the Pope through the seat of Pope. Then we have something that is adopted called De Filius. And I'll, let me explain what this is straight from their Vatican Council notes. God, the principle and end of all things, can be known with certainty by the natural light of human reason from created things. Okay, so they, that's what they said. And so their divine truths and knowledge was necessary for salvation. But those divine truths can only be known through divine revelation. And the Pope was the only one who had the power and authority to reveal this, and it was necessary for salvation. As you can see, the Pope is amassing more power and more influence over the church as a whole. And then we have Pastor Eternus, which is the infallibility of the Pope. So when he was speaking ex cathedra, from the seat of Pope, he was infallible. And when the need arises, when he does speak ex cathedra, he is proclaiming something that all Catholics must follow as if it's from God. And the Catholics struggled with this at first. Some followed this to the extreme, to that everything that came out of the Pope's mouth was infallible, that he himself as a human being was without sin. He was unable to make mistakes. Some people took it way too far. There were some that didn't agree with it at all, and they rejected the idea altogether. And so you see this power struggle existing within the Catholic Church. And it stayed that way until the Vatican II, which is the second Vatican Council a few decades later, which is what they call a new Pentecost. So they're still struggling with the uniformity and... They're maintaining their global position as the true church of God. So they got together and they used this opportunity to no longer pronounce judgment against Protestant churches. This was big because if you read the Council of Trent, which was the authoritative 
document at that time, you look at everything that was counter-reformation on it. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he is only necessary for salvation, he alone is necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. And you see hundreds of those things in the Council of Trent. Let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. So now what they're doing in, in Vatican II is the Protestant Church is no longer anathema. They are no longer accursed. And now they call them separated brethren in an effort to bridge the gap between Catholicism and Protestantism. And that's part of why there's so much confusion about is the Catholic Church one of us by extension or not? And so we have to make it clear here that they are a separate entity. They do not share the exact same faith with us. Their Jesus is not our Jesus. Their God is not our God. Let's be very clear about that. Some major doctrinal changes that they, they did here was, one, they had a big debate on the Paschal Mystery, which is the passion, the death, the resurrection, and glorification of Christ. They had a major debate about this one. This was the first time that they allowed modern music to be allowed in their church before they would sing the old hymns in Latin. Mass must maintain the same doctrine as it always did, but it no longer was required to be in Latin. Mary is now the mother of the church, further deifying her. She is now the mother of the church, just as God is the father. So that's a big one. The church claims that they rediscovered documents from 1700 years prior that called for the reshaping of the church structure. Hmm. And then when the church itself was challenged as being called a false religion, they responded simply by saying that an infallible church simply cannot repent. In other words, claiming we are not doing anything wrong. We are legitimately infallible. So this is the Catholic Church history that we're dealing with today, and it's still going on. And as I mentioned earlier, the current Pope, Pope Francis, has really changed the landscape of the Catholic Church in ways that a lot of people never saw coming. And so it's continuing to be reshaped and to be reborn into something completely different than it used to be. In fact, last year, they are also trying to bridge the gap with the Muslims, trying to say that they are brothers by extension. And they're also trying to reach out to the Jews and try to absorb them as well. So we see that the Catholic Church is actively trying to create the one world religion, which is something that the book of Revelation speaks about. So who knows when or how this is going to happen, but this is the direction that we're going with the Catholic Church. So, is there anything in this that we can say is legitimate when it comes to the Catholic Church? So, let me read you some scriptures here and let you draw your own conclusions. 
I'll, I'm going to name out a few. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is at the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that any man could boast. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean, then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3 through 3. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. James chapter 2 verses 7 and 24. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 through chapter 2 verse 3. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that this is the last hour. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and verses 12 through 16. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, 
the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And this will conclude today's study today on Catholic history. So next week, we will be going through tradition versus scripture. And this is going to, we're going to dive deep into the Catholic Church. Is this a legitimate organization or not? And I think from the very beginning here, we're already seeing that there is something wrong. Something's amiss. So let's go into not what I say, but what the Word of God says as we go through these coming weeks. Until then, I'm Ryan. Thank you for listening, as always. And we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.